Good morning, church. It is good to see all of you this morning. And looking forward to uh, our time in the Word together and just so encouraged by our time of worshiping the Lord through song uh, together this morning. What is this book that we hold in our hands this morning? This is a fundamental question that has radical implications for our life. One's answer to to this question of what is this book that we hold in our hands today has major implications for the way in which we live our lives. Whether you realize it or not, the way that you view the Bible has life and death consequences. One possible way that somebody could view the Bible is they could say, well, the Bible is not trustworthy. We can't trust what the scriptures say. Some people state this outrightly and are very militant about it. Some people may live this out functionally, just in the way in which they live their life. They go to other sources for counsel. Uh, They go to things of the world for hope uh, and satisfaction or go to some other religion for their salvation. The list could go on and on. So functionally, not living their life in a manner that shows that they uh, trust the Bible. And so just implicitly in the way they live, they, they don't trust the Bible. Or another way that we could view the Bible is just that the Bible is a list of rigid rules that we have to keep in order to earn our salvation. So I have to keep God's word in order to be made right with God. I have to earn my salvation. I have to make my way up to God and earn my way to him. And along with that is there's no joy in obeying the word because... You're constantly questioning, where do I stand with the Lord? Based on my performance, my works, where am I at with the Lord? And so there's no joy in that, right? There's this rigid list of rules that we feel like we have to keep in order to be saved, in order to be made right with God. And there is no joy in that because we're going to be constantly questioning, well, you know, have I done enough good today in order to be made right with God? Another way that we could view the Bible is that, hey, the Bible's good for you. The Bible's good for you, and that's great, but it doesn't, I'm going to go to something else for my salvation. Um, The the Bible's good for you if that works for you. You do you, and I'm going to do me. So some people could just come in and say, hey, that's great that you're a Christian. That's great that you live out the Bible, but keep that to yourself. Uh, I'm going to go to my own way of, of being made right with God. And this kind of leads to just the idea of universalism, that there are multiple ways to, to heaven, uh, that there are multiple ways to God. And so you could say, hey, that's great that you're a Christian, that's great that you're a Muslim, that's great that you're a Buddhist, or the list could go on and on. Um, that's your God, and those, those all are going to lead to heaven one day. And so we could just kind of view it as, okay, that's, that's fine if the Bible works for you, but I'm going to go my own way and do what works for me. So as we walk through Psalm 119, 41 through 48 this morning, 
we're going to see four ways in which we ought to respond to the nature of God's word. And as we walk through this text, uh, we will seek to address some of those views that I just mentioned, these, these three views, possible views. And there are a myriad of other views that somebody could have on the Bible and a lot of ways, that, a lot of uh, nuances to those different views. But just, you know, just to kind of get us uh, thinking uh, a little bit uh, about how somebody could view the scriptures uh, this morning, I uh, just wanted to offer those. And then as we walk through this text, we will, we will uh, see how we ought to respond, biblically speaking, to the nature of the Scriptures. Um, and so let's read Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. So uh, you can follow along with me in your copy of the Scriptures. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise, Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. And shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Church, would you please join me in prayer? Lord, we are so grateful to you for this opportunity to worship together as a faith family to sing praises to you, to read scripture, to hear from your word this morning. We praise you for the precious gift of your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through the Bible. You've revealed to us the way in which we can know you through the scriptures, through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. His work on the cross his glorious resurrection. Lord, we are so humbled and grateful to you for giving us your scriptures. Lord, give us a right understanding of what your word is. Lord, help us to see that the Bible is your very breath. It is inspired by you. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is all true. And Lord, In light of that, may that radically transform our lives. May we see that we are people who need your word, who need not only to know the truth of your word, that is important, but we need more than that, Lord. We need your word for everyday life. We need your word to sustain us. We need your word to encourage us. And Lord, we are also called not only to do these things ourselves, but Lord, to proclaim the glorious truth of your word to those around us as well. And so, Lord, we pray and beg you to do the work that only you can do in us as we hear from your word this morning. Pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So in light of the scriptures, in light of the nature of God's word, in light of what the Bible is, based on this text, there are at least four responses that we should have to the nature of the scriptures. 
The first being that we should trust in God's word. Trust in God's word. So in these first couple of verses, the psalmist cries out for the steadfast love of God. Uh, Cries out for God's steadfast love. And this Hebrew word here, hesed, is used all throughout the, the Old Testament. And this is a reference to God's loyal love. It's God's covenant-keeping love that he, uh, he, is, he, he is faithful to keep his promises to his people, and he displays that through his loving and generous care for his people. So God's steadfast love is one of his attributes. Uh, he deeply loves and cares for his people, and he is faithful to display his love by keeping his, his promises, keeping his word to his children. And the psalmist is experiencing a trial. Yet at the same time of this trial, he is proclaiming that God is full of steadfast love. So he's wrestling with this trial and yet at the same time proclaiming the truth of God's steadfast love for his people and for him in particular. God is faithful to keep his, his love for us, to show his love for us, even whenever we don't feel as if God is loving in the moment. In the difficult trials of life, it can seem as if God is distant. He's not near to me. He doesn't care what's going on in my life. He doesn't notice what's going on in my life. He's just out there, and I'm here struggling, and he doesn't seem to be working in my life and caring for me in this particular moment. And this is likely how the psalmist felt, that God was distant, was away from him, and and didn't seem to be interested in what he was going through. Yet in the same breath, he proclaimed, God, give me your steadfast love. So he's doubting, he's going through this trial, yet at the same time in his head, he knows the truth, that God is full of steadfast love, and he proclaims that. He, he, he calls out to God for his steadfast love. So we can know the truth in our minds, but in reality, not feel as if the truth is actually true in that particular moment in our particular season of our life. And this is really a part of living in a fallen world. It's one of the, the effects of living in a fallen world, that we go through these trials, we go through these sufferings, and we doubt at times, right? We know the truth because it's in the scriptures, yet at the same time there are seasons in which we doubt that and we wrestle with that. God is full of steadfast love, and one of the ways in which he displays that uh, is by delivering and preserving his people. So the psalmist then cries out for God's salvation according to his promise. So God's steadfast love leads to this delivering and preserving of his people, uh, this, this promise to keep his children. So this word salvation here is not, not a reference to justification in the New Testament sense of being declared innocent, um, but more of a, uh, of a reference to the fact that God is delivering his people uh, from the effects of sin, from the effects of living in this fallen world, this particular trial that they may be experiencing in that particular moment. And the psalmist was in the very midst of one of the trials of his life. 
We don't know exactly what he was experiencing. The, this very general here, which is, uh, which is a theme you see throughout the Psalms, uh, most of the time it's very general uh, trials. There's, there's, it doesn't go into the specifics of whatever they were going through, but perhaps there was some sort of physical ailment that he was experiencing. Maybe it was a loss of wealth or possessions. Maybe a death of a loved one, maybe a wife or a kid. Maybe there was some sort of conflict with someone else that was unresolved and was leading to all kinds of uh, just dissension within his family or his community. Maybe he was experiencing, you know, shame uh, for something sinful and or embarrassing that he had committed. Not only was he experiencing a trial, but he was being mocked by others. He's being mocked by others around him. So you know the saying that you don't kick a dog while he was down? Well, he was down and he was being kicked. He was being mocked by those around him. This is exactly what was going on. The psalmist was enduring these, this trial and others around him are mocking him while he's suffering. And the psalmist prays to the Lord that the Lord would rescue him and that when the Lord rescues him, because he knows he's faithful to his promise, that this would be a testimony to his accusers, to those who are mocking him, that my God is faithful. And so that is what he is crying out. As he is suffering, as he's being mocked, Lord, save me. Deliver me from the effects of sin. Deliver me from the, this fall, the effects of this fallen world. And as you do that, Lord, glorify yourself as you save me from the effects of sin. And would that be a testimony to your glory, to your steadfast love, that you truly are God. As the psalmist waits for the Lord to deliver him, he rests in the hope of God's word. Look at verse 43. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. So his hope is in God's rules. These rules are a reference to God's word, uh, to the scriptures. So this, this uh, idea of hope is to wait uh, or to look forward to something uh, or entrust yourself to God. He says, don't take your word from me. Don't take your word from me. In other words, remain faithful to your promise. Remain faithful to your promise to keep me, to preserve me. The psalmist was waiting for God to act in accordance with his character. He knew that God was faithful. He knew God was going to act, yet he was in the season of waiting. And so there was this, this trust in God that led to a hope and that God will deliver me from my enemy. Biblical hope leads to a waiting for God to act. And that doesn't always happen in the exact timing that we would hope, but, but God is faithful to act in the ways, faithful to his ways, and the timing that he so chooses, and that will bring glory and honor to him. God's word does not promise a trial-free life. It does not. In fact, we see the very opposite uh, in the scriptures. Just read through the story of Joseph and Genesis, being sold into slavery, being eventually thrown into prison from a false accusation, and all that he went through. Or just consider the, 
the, as they were enslaved in Egypt after Joseph passed away. The Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and all the suffering that, that came from that. Or just look to the New Testament. Uh, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, you have the early church who's being persecuted, being martyred for their faith in Jesus, being told to not declare the gospel, to not declare that Jesus is Messiah. And they are experiencing this suffering, these many sufferings from the Jews, particularly. Or just look at church history. Look at church history and see how there are many martyrs of the faith. And even Christians now in different parts of the world extreme, uh, face extreme persecution. So we are not promised a trial-free life because we don't follow a trial-free Savior. We follow a suffering Savior. Jesus suffered, endured the cross on our behalf. The nails were pierced through his hands and his legs. The crown of thorns was thrust on his brow. He was whipped. He was mocked. And he eventually was dead. He died for our sins. He suffered for you and I so that we could have life. So we serve a suffering Savior. Although we endure many sufferings in this world, we can cling to the truth of the Bible. We can hold fast to the truth that our God is full of steadfast love and that he will deliver his people. God uses his word and his spirit to empower his people to endure through various trials. So let's consider this, this this struggle to trust in God's word in the midst of adversity in our lives. So again, we can know the truth, we can know the Bible, yet we can doubt it in different seasons of our life and doesn't feel as if it's actually true in that moment in our lives. The Psalms are filled with, with this, uh, filled with the psalmist crying out and questioning to God, God, where are you? Do you care about what's going on in my life right now? How long, O oh Lord, will you let my enemies be over me? How long, O oh Lord, until you deliver me? How long must, must this go on? God, if this goes on, long, goes on any, any longer, then I'm going to die, as some of the Psalms say. So there's this questioning of God, this doubting in the Psalms as you look through it. But then as you continue through the Psalms, the, as they progress from the questioning and the doubting, you, it leads to the declaration of the truth of who God is and how he is faithful to keep his word to his people. And, he, and how the psalmist knows that God will deliver. God will deliver him from his trials and his sufferings. Consider the, the Israelites' uh, enslavement, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, the, his, God's delivering of, um, of the Israelites from the Egyptians. So Joseph died. And you have the Egyptians enslave uh, the, uh, the Israelites because they were growing in number and they were a threat to, uh, their, uh, to the new king's power. He thought, saw them as a threat. 
Exodus 2, 23 through 25 says that during those many days, the king of Egypt died, that they had favor with, uh, and, then, and then people of Israel groaned uh, because of their slavery, and they cried out. They cried out for help to God. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. So God hears the groaning of his people, and God remembered He remembered. What did he remember? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God heard, God remembered. And then God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So just in those verses there of this extreme trial that the Israelites are enduring, they're crying out to God for deliverance in the midst of suffering, Questioning, God, why are we here? What is going on? Where are you? Please deliver us. And God is listening. He hears, he remembers his covenant, and then he promises to act. So the Israelites are enslaved, and they begin to groan and cry out to God for help. They knew they were the chosen people of God, and they knew that God was faithful. They knew that God was going to keep his covenant. In that moment, they didn't feel it, but they knew that God would deliver them. So God heard their cry and remembered his covenant to his people. And then God enacts his plan of deliverance. He calls Moses and sends them to Egypt. We have the ten plagues and Moses negotiating with Pharaoh. And then as the Israelites waited for their deliverance, they were struggling. They were doubting. They complained. Yet at the same time, they knew who God was. They knew that he would be faithful to his character and they knew that he, in fact, would deliver them from the Egyptians. And eventually, God did. Eventually, he did. He parted the Red Sea, and they crossed over the Red Sea. And this was Israel's response to their deliverance. Exodus fourteen thirty and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. So this is after he had heard their cry, remembered his covenant, and promised to act, and he did. He saved the Israels that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. This led to a reverence for God, and they believed God. So they, they, they knew that God would act according to his word, and he did. They believed him. They trusted him. So they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The Israelites were enslaved. They cried out to God for deliverance. And as they waited on the Lord, they struggled yet trusted. And then God delivered them and led them into the promised land. And this led to the Israelites worshiping the Lord. So may the trials that that we endure lead us to the throne of grace where refuge and true hope is found. As we go through the various trials that we experience, may we cling to the truth of God's word to wait on the Lord, have a hope that in knowing that God will act, he is working, and may it lead us to worship our Lord. Trust in God's word because he is faithful, church. The psalmist trusts in the word of God in the midst of his trial, but also seeks to live out God's word. So this is our second response to God's word, the nature of God's word, that we are to obey God's word. 
Look at verses 44 and 45. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. So the word of God is not merely meant to be read and understood, but it is to transform our hearts and transform our lives. So the psalmist states here that he will keep and he will walk in God's word. That's the language we see in these couple of verses. So to keep God's word means to follow God's commands, to follow his word. And then to walk is just a reference to the manner in which one lives their life. Uh, if you look to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you see this language used multiple times throughout uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians. It's a reference to the manner in which somebody walks or how, how they live their life. That's, that's what the idea here of walking. So keeping and walking uh, in God's word. And he says that he will walk in a wide place. He will walk in a wide place. And this wide place is a reference to, obviously, a spacious place. But, but what does it mean? What, what is the meaning behind that phrase? Uh, well, it means to, uh, to walk in freedom. It refers to walking in freedom, to be liberated. So in light of who God is and the trustworthiness of his word, we can freely live out our lives in accordance with his word. Uh, in light of who God is, in light of what his word is, uh, of what his word is, the trustworthiness of it, we can freely live our lives uh, in accordance with his word. And as New Testament uh, Christians, we have the full canon of scripture. So we can now say in light of what Christ has done on our behalf, we have been liberated from the shackles of sin and death and because of this, we can now freely live out the scriptures. We can freely live out God's word. We can seek to honor him with our lives because of what Christ has done. Jesus is the only one, the only one who has perfectly lived out this word. He is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. You and I, friend, we cannot do that. We are born into sin. We have rebelled against God, and we are imperfect. We cannot perfectly keep this word. Only Christ has done that on our behalf. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you're seeking to earn your way to God. You're trying to obey God's commands in order to be made right with God. Friend, I would just encourage you, please don't do that. You can't earn your way to God. You cannot make yourself right with the Lord. Because the requirements of being made right with the Lord is holiness, is perfection, and even though we like to think we are better than we actually are, we, we don't even come close to the holiness of God. Not even close. We fall short of his glory, and we need a perfect Savior. And so don't try to earn your way to God. Lay down your sin, lay down your pride, and come running to the cross. Come running to Jesus who is our perfect Savior, who lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death on the cross to rescue us so that we could stop trying to earn our way to God, so that we could simply rest in his perfect life and his sacrifice and his resurrection. So friend, if, you're, if that describes you this morning, please come to faith in Jesus. Come to him who alone can save you, and who alone can make you right with the Father. Believers, because of the work of Christ, 
We are now free to, to live joyfully in obedience to our King. And when we entrust uh, ourselves to Jesus and his work, we receive the Holy Spirit that empowers us by his grace to then live in accordance with the scriptures. And so believers press on in the pursuit of holiness, seeking to honor the Lord with your life, pursuing holiness by the power of the Spirit and his grace. So in light of who God is, his faithfulness, and who we are in Christ, we can freely and confidently and joyfully live in accordance with God's word. So just one practical example of what this might look like in in our lives as believers is just seeing how the faithfulness of God ought to shape our lives. We talked about trusting in God's word in our first response. So how does that shape our lives? How does that shape the way in which we live? Well, if the Bible is the word of God, and it is, and it is perfectly faithful that on every single page, every single word, then it ought to radically transform the way in which we live our lives. God's faithfulness provides us with a true and lasting hope. It helps us to battle our anxious thoughts whenever we are doubting in the, in the midst of a trial, when we're doubting God's faithfulness. As we go to the word, it reminds us of the fact that God is faithful and he will deliver us. It aids us in our battle against the fear of man. So a, a reminder of the faithfulness of God, of his character, it transforms how we interact with people in this world. We don't have to fear man. We don't have to fear what others may say or think about us. But we can rest. We can rest in knowing that our God is faithful, that he loves and cares for us deeply, and that we can just fear him and live in a reverent uh, fear of, of him and live in accordance to his word not have to worry about the fear of man. God's faithfulness encourages us to persevere in the, in the myriad of trials uh, that we experience in this life. Even though we're going through uh, trials uh, in this life and we're wrestling with difficult things, something weighty, uh, we, can, we, we can still trust in God's faithfulness because of what his word says. We can continue to faithfully live out God's word just as the psalmist does here. So as you hear the word of God preached and, and you read the word, uh, just, we, we must consider how that truth, it's not just something that we understand in our minds, but how that actually comes out practically in our lives. So we're not merely to be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. In verse 46 we see that we are to proclaim God's word. Third response, verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. So the excellencies of God's word are so precious that we must not keep them to ourselves. They are so precious that we must not keep them to ourselves. Testimonies here is a reference again to God's word. It's a reference to the scriptures. And so the psalmist here says that we ought to even speak of God's word, even to kings. So even those who have the highest status in society, even the people who have the most power here on earth, 
who could inflict harm and pain on us if they so choose because of our faith, we need to proclaim it even to those. We need to proclaim it to the, the, uh, all the government officials, all the kings, everybody in the highest places of authority here on this earth because they need Jesus just as much as the least of these do. Just as much as the, the homeless person on the street needs Jesus, so too does the, the most powerful people in the world. Because Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is worthy of everybody's worship, including the, most, the people with the highest authority here on this earth. Everybody is worthy. Uh, he is worthy of everybody's worship. So we should not be ashamed of God's word. We shouldn't be, feel guilty or embarrassed about the scriptures. We ought to be like Paul before King Agrippa, who boldly proclaimed the gospel through his testimony uh, in, in Acts 26. Uh, he proclaimed the gospel through his testimony before this powerful earthly ruler. So whether we have the opportunity like Paul uh, to, uh, influence, to, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim our testimony to the king, uh, powerful king, or whether it's some sort of average Joe uh, like me or some, anybody on the earth, uh, we, we ought to do so boldly. We ought to proclaim the glorious deeds of the gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For in it, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is the power that saves sinners. The gospel is the power that brings dead sinners to life. We have the most glorious news ever that dead sinners can be made alive by grace through faith in Jesus. And we must hold uh, that, that not only to ourselves, not hold to, hold, to, hold to that truth ourselves, but also proclaim that news to others. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And so the lost and dying world around us needs the hope of the gospel. We who have the Spirit of God, who display and declare the, uh, the, the, the Word of God, will be rejected and mocked by others as the psalmist was here. But even so, we must boldly live out and proclaim the gospel to others. Consider the disciples of the early church. They rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer for the preaching of the gospel. They, counted, they, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. And furthermore, one day, those who mock and shame us now will one day face the shame of standing before God, the living God, the one true God, and face his judgment. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So everybody will either will, will come, will, will realize that Jesus is Lord at some point, whether that's while they walk on the face of this earth or whether that's after they have passed away from this earth and when the Lord returns, when they stand before his face and they have to give an account 
uh, for their lives, then they will recognize in that moment that Jesus is Lord, and they will confess that with their tongues. So everybody will one day come to realize that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. And those who may shame us and mock us in this day for our faith in Jesus as Lord will one day be ashamed as they stand, if they continue to reject him as they stand before the Lord in his judgment. The word of God is trustworthy because it is, it is inspired by God. And because it is trustworthy, it is to be obeyed and proclaimed. And furthermore, we ought to delight in God's word. We ought to delight in God's word. Let's read verses 47 and 48. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. How many Georgia football fans do we have in here? Raise your hand. You don't have to be ashamed. Okay, so it looks like we've got more Georgia fans over here. Or I, don't, I guess over here we don't, don't have them. So, uh, so we... So, how many, I know you, all of you Georgia fans watched the, the football game a couple of Monday nights ago, right? Um, how many of you during that game at some point, you know, maybe jumped out of your seat or, you know, yelled and, you know, clapped your hands and got all excited? You can be honest. I'm not judging you. I, I do the same thing with Clemson games, okay? You can just ask, ask Kayla, ask Samuel. Uh, he, he knows uh, that, that dad will get excited, you know, uh, and clap during the, during the Clemson games when something goes well. Um, so I'm not casting any judgment. Um, but I have often asked myself this question, man, do I get that excited about God's word and, and, and the gospel and uh, just seeing his kingdom advance? And you know, I'm often convicted about that. And you know, I'm not saying that we should you know, clap and scream and jump out of our seats every time we read the scriptures. Maybe, that, maybe it leads to that response. I don't know. But, but in our hearts, like, is that delight, is that joy, there, that passion there, that we have for our favorite college football team, whoever that might be. So God's word ought to stir our affections for God. It ought to lead to a delight, a passion for the Lord. So we should be excited, passionate about God and the, and the truth that is found in his word. Consider when is the last time that perhaps you were brought to tears as you read the truth of the scriptures. Because maybe you were convicted of a sin that you had committed, or maybe you were convicted of the fact that you weren't doing something that you ought to be doing, and you mourned and grieved that you had been rebelling against God and living in sin. Or maybe you were led to tears of joy, of just thankfulness that God rescued you from sin and death through the work of Christ, and you were just so grateful and thankful to God for that because you know apart from him pursuing you that you would still be in your sins and trespasses. Our hearts ought to be overwhelmed with gratitude as we see God's faithfulness, the character of God in his word. The glorious news or the glorious truths that we see in God's word, it ought to penetrate our hearts, the very core of our being, and it ought to lead us to delight in, to treasure God 
It ought to bring a smile to our face or tears to our eyes. It ought to lead to, to stir our affections for the Lord. Now, these affections are not to just be this momentary, just outburst of emotion, a momentary reaction to the word that doesn't lead to any transformation. But it, 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 as, our, as our affections are stirred, it should lead to action. It, it should lead us to, uh, to live differently, to live in a way that brings honor to God. I just, uh, as I was thinking about this, I just considered, you know, my delight in, in my children. You got to see both of them on stage this morning, Samuel and Joanna. And I, you know, love them so much. And it just overjoys uh, my heart to see them learn new things, to, uh, to grow uh, as bittersweet as it is, uh, to just see them. Uh, you know, just sometimes it just melts my heart and it just stirs my affections for them. And it leads to action. It leads to a greater love for them. It leads to a hug, a kiss, uh, just, you know, serving them, whatever it might be. So our affections for God ought to lead to an action. To, it ought to lead us to live lives that bring honor to him. These aren't just uh, emotions that we just, you know, we, we display and then we just don't live any differently. They ought to stir our heart, but then move into our hands and our feet. Another result of delighting in the word is that we meditate on the word. Look at verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So to lift uh, my hands here is, is, a, uh, is typically a reference to a posture for prayer. And in this context, it's likely just referring to a reverence for God's word, a yearning, a de- desire for God's word. So a delight in the word leads to a meditation on the word. And to meditate on the word is to reflect deeply uh, to carefully consider uh, the truths of God's word um, and how it impla- impacts our lives, how it ought to transform our lives, how it speaks into the, uh, the, the most minute parts of our life, uh, of how I do the dishes, uh, how I cook the meal for the family, or how I serve my children, or how I serve my neighbor, or how I treat that person uh, that's driving down the road and doesn't seem to know what they're doing. How do I treat that person? How do I respond to that person? How do I respond to the person who's been a jerk to me? All of that. As we meditate, as we consider the truth of God's word, it's not just something that's up here, you know, outside of us, but it's how does it impact the very smallest task that I go through each and every day? So we ought not to just read the Bible to check it off the list. In our time in God's Word, it should be an intentional time of meditating and delighting in God's Word, reflecting on the glorious truths that we are reading. And it ought to stir our affections, and it ought to lead us to carefully consider, how does it apply to my daily life? If I were to take Kayla out on a date just because I'm supposed to and check that off the list and just to be checked out uh, while I'm you know, at the restaurant or wherever we go, and not ask any questions about what's going on and intentionally seek to, uh, to love her and serve her, uh, then that's not going to be good news, right? That's not going to be good news. Uh, I want to take her on a date because I want to invest in her. I want to hear what's going on in her heart. I want to love her and care for her and serve her and uh, just to know her uh, on a deeper level. And in a similar way, this should be the case with our time with God's Word. It's not just something that we are supposed to do, and again, to check off the list. 
but we are to enjoy God. We are to feast on God as we look to his word. So to meditate on the word is to consider the truth that you are, are reading and humbly reflect and consider how does this truth get worked out in my own heart, in my own life, and how I interact with other people and how I worship God. So as we conclude, just a couple of takeaways from this sermon. Number one, make it a priority to read, delight in, and meditate on the scriptures. So this year just began. We're just a couple of weeks into 2022, and particularly uh, at the the beginning of the year, it's often a time to just kind of reset and, and to consider how am I going to spend time in God's Word. So I would just encourage you, if you don't have some sort of plan to, to, to be in the Scriptures this year, uh, to, to do that. It's not too late. It's never too late. Uh, take time to consider, God, what, is, uh, what does it look like for me to be in the Scriptures this year? Um, and ask somebody to hold you accountable to that. Share your plan with somebody. Ask them to hold you accountable to your plan. So commit to regularly reading the Bible and have an accountability partner uh, for morning. Uh, reading the Bible ought to impact our everyday lives. Uh, the scriptures give us true hope because it reveals our faithful God to us. And so renew and refresh your soul each and every day with the precious word of God. Secondly, live out the Bible. So perhaps you're here this morning uh, and you're not liberated from sin and death yet. You, you are still shackled to sin uh, because you have not believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Again, friend, don't try to earn your favor with God by your actions, but simply come to Jesus in faith and trusting yourself, knowing that he has accomplished the work on your behalf and just placing your faith completely in him and that he alone can save you. Turn away from your sin and then tell that to somebody. Tell somebody that you know and trust this morning, hey, I have come to faith in the Lord this morning and I want to live my life for him. Can you please help me do that? The gospel of Jesus Christ brings true and lasting joy. It satisfies like nothing else in this world can offer. Nothing in this world can offer true hope and lasting joy like the gospel. And so don't seek for joy and peace and salvation in the things of this world, the things that your flesh naturally desires. But come to Jesus, and he will provide rest for your soul, and he will liberate you from the shackles of sin and death. Believers, perhaps there's a sin that you need to confess. Perhaps there's something that you have not been doing that you should be doing. Consider the things in in your heart, that uh, the, the ways you've rebelled against God, and confess those things. Believers, consider how God's faithfulness ought to inform the, 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 uh, the things that, that make you anxious or concerned. What others think about you or your task list or your schoolwork or your children or your future. The list could go on and on. How does God's faithfulness speak into those things that make you anxious? Again, we live in a fallen world, a sinful world, and we will be anxious. We will be. Um, but we must continue to fight our anxious words, our, our anxious thoughts with God's word, by reminding ourselves of the truth, clinging to the truth of God's word, and trusting in them. Thirdly, when you face adversity, trust in God's word. So we all experience various trials in this life, some small, some major. Cling to the truth of God's word. 
repeat the truth of, that to yourself that God is faithful. Even whenever you don't feel it in the moment, go to the scriptures and remind yourself that God is faithful. Have the word hidden on your heart. Meditate on the word. Memorize the word. And in those moments, recall those truths to your mind to encourage you in that moment. The truth of God's word is one of the most valuable tools to, as we walk through challenging seasons of this life. Church, God's word is faith, faithful and trustworthy. So cling to God's word when you experience various trials in this life. Obey God's word. As you delight in and meditate on the scriptures, consider how that truth applies to your everyday life. And lastly, proclaim God's word to others. Our lost and dying world needs the gospel, needs the words of life. So boldly declare the gospel. For it is in the gospel that liberation from sin and death are found. And it's only found in the gospel alone. Church, thanks be to God for his precious word to us. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to your word, to you for your word. We're so grateful that we can trust your word that it is faithful, that it is inspired by you. And Lord, I pray for anybody in here this morning that doesn't know you by faith, that has not trusted in the gospel, that has not trusted in the gospel that is revealed in your word. God, would you give them faith to trust in Jesus this morning? Would you humble them? Would you lead them to repentance and confession of sin? And would you help them to, to just lay their sin at the foot of the cross? and to come to faith in Jesus. Lord, would you do that now? And Lord, for those of us in this room who are believers, thank you so much for your salvation. And we pray, God, that you would continue to work in us as we wrestle with the, the effects of, of living in a fallen world. May we cling to the truth of your word. May we hold fast to you. May we be reminded of your truth. May we uh, delight in your word and meditate on the word. And Lord, as we do that, may it lead us to joyfully obey your word, to live in light of what your word says. And as we do that, Lord, would we proclaim the glorious gospel, the only hope for the world, to those around us and to the ends of the earth. We pray all this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen.